Welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. I'm David James from 360 Learning, and each episode I chat with guests about what lights them up in the world of people development. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Robin Sargent about instructional design. But before we get into it, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do give us a five-star rating on your podcast app of choice to help others to find us. And thank you if you've done so already. Now, let's get into it. Robin, welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Uh, so Robin, my L&D career spans almost 25 years. And yet in all the positions I've held, I've never worked with or employed an instructional designer. And I'm certainly not one myself. I can't be the only one. And so seeing as uh, L&D teams are so small these days, I'm sure that uh, that, that there are many who, uh, who haven't worked with an instructional designer and probably many different people with, uh, of, uh, within different uh, subsections of, uh, of our profession. So uh, perhaps for the purposes of, uh, of this conversation, could we start from the beginning? And could you clarify what an instructional designer does and the problems they're employed to solve? Well, I wonder if it's just that they're not called instructional designers or that you don't identify yourself as one. Because we've had conversations, David, and you definitely know what an instructional designer does and i bet a lot of it is part of jobs that you've had mm. so in short i would just say that an instructional designer is somebody who can analyze a performance gap in a company or you know a government or a nonprofit or any kind of organization and mm. based on analyzing that performance gap select a solution that solves it whether that solution is um, learning materials or you know, an apprenticeship program or whatever it is that solves performance gap problems that are a result of a lack of knowledge or skills. Mm. Uh, then you're right, uh, Robin. Uh, <laughs> and I'd say that not only have I worked with on, I think I'd count myself uh, within that, uh, uh, that that field myself. Uh, but but instructional designers sometimes get a hard time, uh, especially um, recently. Why do you think this is? What kind of hard time? Uh, well, the instructional design uh, is uh, as a as a profession in itself is is redundant. Redundant mm. because uh, because uh, perhaps it's not fit for purpose. Oh, you mean like the part where there are people in our own industry who yes. say that we're yeah. not doing a good job? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's probably the nature of the people that are attracted to our industry, right? They're always. <laughs> very analytical about the things that we do and how we can do things better. And um, and I think that's part of maybe even the nature of the personality of our industry group, if you will. But I think that there are a lot of things that we do get right. And I appreciate uh, the people who, you know, I guess you would, I'm trying to find a word that is uh, appropriate here, but uh, give give the industry a hard time because there are ways to improve. Mm. And of course, that's, I mean, that's totally valid, right? We do want to get better. But I think that there is absolutely a lot of value that we already bring, and we're only getting better. And so what do you think um, may be common misunderstandings about the role of instructional designers, especially today? I Well, if there's a misunderstanding about the role, then it's usually around that they think that all instructional designers are just click next e-learning developers, mm. which is a different thing. Uh, and as a matter of fact, you can be an instructional designer and never build e-learning. 
Mm-hmm. And a true form instructional designer is the one who really is on that design side of, you know, solving the performance gap. And that's identifying the needs and finding a solution and then designing the solution. Mm. So not all of that includes e-learning at all. And so I think that's one of the misconceptions is that instructional design has turned into all these bad e-learning courses and Mm. click next and people will think that it's all the tools when it's really so much more. And um, I, and I, those, those are the mostly the arguments that I hear from Mm. that. And I think it really is just either they want to find something like, Oh, unpopular opinion of the day Mm. sort of thing, or they're misunderstanding or they're just not exposed to the rest of what people are doing in the industry. Hmm. Well, you mentioned uh, e-learning there, and uh, and I've experienced some truly dreadful e-learning in my time uh, as an end user and as the person who's tasked with pushing it out to an organisation. Um, I, th- I thought that this would improve when I joined Disney, um, but uh, but as uh, as high as my expectation uh, was, the the drop down to reality uh, was was blood curdling. I'd uh, I'd say metaphorically. But so, why is e-learning uh, reluctantly received, and is it inevitable? that it is going to be reluctantly received by uh, by uh, employees? Oh, well, I mean, just think about the variables that are involved in getting, first of all, creating the e-learning. We know that um, training budgets are usually tight because a lot of businesses don't appreciate the return on investment or they don't see it, or maybe, um, heaven forbid, the programs and solutions aren't built to actually improve any kind of outcomes or or data or measurable outcomes. And so it really doesn't have any ROI for a business. Mm. And so you're talking about people who are put in a situation where they are to solve a problem, but they're not given adequate time or resources or support to do so. So that's your first level of variable. Mm. And so they're just like, get it done. I remember um, even when I was a director, one of the thing, first jobs that they gave me uh, in that role was, I need you to build a recruiter training in 45 days, and it's got to be 14 modules. Mm. And so you can imagine what kind of e-learning I built in 45 days for 14 modules. Mm-hmm. It was pretty terrible. And then you have the employees themselves mm. who are working full-time jobs. They also have their own stressors in Mm. the jobs that they're doing. And now they probably have some kind of performance gap in their job. That is why that they're being pushed into this training. Mm. And so, um, and then who knows what kind of culture um, has also added to this performance problem that they're seeing. And, uh, and, uh, not only do they have this problem, now you got to fix it by going to this, uh, boring, terrible training. And if you don't, then, you know, you're going to be punished in some way, or we're going to keep sending you emails. And uh, and yeah, you, pro- you know, yeah, you're kind of paid for it because mm. you're a salary employee, but what you're really measured on is your actual work. So try to fit it in somewhere. So they're just, I think there's a lot of that that has to do with why they are resistant to it. Mm. And uh, <laughs> why when they actually do open it up, they see a subpar resource. Mm. 
yeah so so you've you've, you've described a, a lot of my uh, uh of my experience there of uh of uh of e-learning but 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 you know i, I suppose another way of looking at it uh, robin is uh like much of l d it seems to me that people can become instructional designers with very little or no qualification so there's a low barrier to entry what are the common pitfalls of creating content without qualifications i mean apart from what you've just described there that just because you can open up uh, a, a an e-learning suite and you've got an idea or you've got the the will to create some content i mean doesn't necessarily mean that you should does it no well of course not right just because you can doesn't mean that you should yeah um, i think it's interesting that you say that there's a low barrier to entry i think it i think it depends it used to I mean, even when I made the transition in 2012, it was not a low barrier to entry because I had to, in order to even get my foot in the door, I had to build a portfolio from scratch. Mm. I had to completely redo a resume. I had to show up to an interview and I had to take a test with this company to prove that I could do all these things. Mm. And so even to build the portfolio to prepare myself for the interview, there was a lot of study and practice that I had to do on my own. And even now, the only time that I see it's a low barrier to entry to become an instructional designer is if you're already working in a company, yep. you make friends with that L&D department, mm -hmm. and then you kind of, you know, get a friend hire kind of situation. And I've seen that. Mm -hmm. And I and I agree. I think that, you know, those kinds of situations, maybe they don't also take the time to invest in their knowledge and skills to be an instructional designer. They're just like, oh, hey, come work on my team. Mm. Uh, being in customer service really stinks. It's more fun over here in the L&D department. Yeah. I can see that as being a low barrier, but all right now in our current market, I do not see it being a low barrier to mm. entry. And I think that, yeah, there's a lot that um, gets missed if people don't go through the process of getting themselves through the door. Hmm. Um, and I think the other part that might be a little barrier to entry is who's interviewing. Yeah. Right. If it's an HR person or someone who has no clue about instructional design and they show them a, a pretty e-learning, then that person might get a job and they probably have, don't have any other qualifications and they can make something pretty hmm. in storyline. And so I think it's a good, I think it's a better mix probably now. I think more people have had to climb a bigger wall to get into our industry than it used to be. Mm. Um, and so what was the second half of that question? <laughs> I can't remember the second half of that question because I'm late, but it's led me on to, uh, to, uh, to, to my next because uh, I wonder whether some of it is because in learning and development, we've overvalued face-to-face -face training and seen uh, any element of online as supplementary. And so, so we've considered it uh, lower down the food chain but I think that the experiment that uh, the live experiment that Google and YouTube have been running with us for the last 15 years or so can show you that um, that the learning and development can exist largely without face-to-face -face. so it kind of um, uh, increases people's expectations and if not within L&D then certainly with our stakeholders who might expect that they'll be guided and supported to be doing more of the right stuff from before they even join an organization right through to the time that they decide not to um, but um, going back then to uh, to instructional designers uh, and what you said before about you know the, the, the barrier being higher for, for you when, uh, when you interviewed and um, and I can certainly see the case if you're applying from outside 
uh, of an organization. What qualifications and experience do you think that instructional designers need um, if we are to change the perception, uh, employees' perceptions of e-learning? I think that the qualifications that they need is whether you're an e-learning developer or you want to be a true front-end analysis designer, instructional designer, is it has to be that they have to know both sides. And I know people say like, we we don't need your unicorns, but mm. I actually disagree. I think that you should be a unicorn in a sense where you have a small caterpillar of skills, where you understand a little bit of everything that we do in our L&D department. Because... It means that you now understand a holistic picture so that even if you just want to be an e-learning developer, you should know the reasoning behind why they chose to uh, structure the course this way, uh, why buttons should be in a certain place, why there should be practice activities, what type of assessment should be built um, to measure whether people have actually uh, learned the content that's been presented to them. And then also the instructional designer should understand how the technology works because how are you going to instruct a developer to build a thing if you don't even know what the software is capable of doing? I, mm. I've uh, been a consultant many years and I, sometimes I would just get projects and the instructional designer had no clue what the software could do and they would ask you know, need to do insane things in storyline and they just didn't even know that those things were not possible, which makes for what more wasted time of going back and forth between the developer and the instructional designer. And so um, as far as like what would help the industry just like getting started and uh, making everybody kind of better what they job at their job, understand the whole caterpillar skills. And then of course, then you drill down and create your T-shaped combs, comb shaped skills, uh, you know, for your career. But I think that people should be exposed to all the things so that you understand the whole picture. And, and you yourself have your own methodology that you detail in your book, uh, The Do It Messy Approach, a step-by-step -step guide for instructional designers and online learning developers. Could you give us a high-level overview of your approach, perhaps as a teaser to what the reader would understand in more detail when they read your book? So my approach is just an accumulation of all these years of being an instructional designer, but specifically being and a unique role of being a president of an authorized vocational school for our industry, instructional design and e-learning development. And in that role, all I've been focused on is how, how can I make this a formula for people, mm. right? Because whenever you're teaching somebody a skill, you want them to be able to understand what the steps are, break it down, demonstrate how it's done, give them an application opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. And instructional design, there's so many grays. There's so many times that we say, oh, well, it depends. And well, maybe this solution works. Maybe that solution works. There's lots of solutions that can work for this one problem, right? They are irregular problems. And so I just always looked for, but that's not good enough for a new student coming to our field. And I think that also kind of, you know, inhibits the way that they learn holistically about what it is that we do. And so I looked for a formula and I first really, it came to me when I read David Merrill's First Principles of Instruction. And this book is a giant textbook. I mean, mm -hmm. it is something that they 
you know, they give you if you go to your master's program in instructional design, right? You might get access to first principles of instruction, but it's not something that people are picking up as a brand new instructional designer. If you're less they're not even introduced to this textbook. It wouldn't be something that you'd be like, oh, you want to be an instructional designer? Boom. Here's this book for you to learn. But what's inside that book is what I saw as a real formula. And that's really what the do it messy approach is all about. It's about sharing the formula for designing solid instruction for your course blueprint. I don't get into the tools or that kind of things, but it's it's all about what's the most important thing. And that is keeping our instruction problem or complex task centered and giving people full demonstrations and application opportunities. And then once they've practiced, right, they've had deliberate practice with their feedback and it's centered around real world context and mm. problems and scenarios, whatever you want to call them, then integrating it into their own world through some type of peer-to-peer interaction. And so basically it's all entire breakdown from how step-by-step mm. how to actually write a course blueprint based on these principles of problem-centered instruction. Mm. And, and is there, are there any uh, pitfalls that you've recognized over the years that you're looking to address? Again, because when I, I uh, was first exposed to e-learning would have been the late 1990s. And I'd say that, that my experience of it for the next 15 years was pretty much the same, even though uh, my expectations of uh, online experiences had changed to, to it being uh, faster, more nimble, more specific to my needs. And yet uh, and yet so much e-learning was uh, was static, was generic, was uh, wasn't really trying to help me with what I was trying to do. It was trying to educate me uh, on things, uh, on gaps that others had anticipated that I needed to know. Uh, I, I mean, is, does your methodology that, that you've articulated in your book bring uh, instructor design into 2022 and beyond? I think so, because it's based on the multitude of theories and models and studies that have all come before. And David Merrill did a lot of the groundwork for me. Thank you. And and I really, he is part of like, you know, my hero for this book journey. Mm. And based on all of it, he, he identified the things that are consistent throughout all the theories and all the models. And that is that people, it needs to be problem centered. People need to work in on real world context you have to show them a full demonstration i mean even when you just think about people like tying their shoes you're teaching a child how to tie their shoes what's the first thing that you do you show them you show them how to tie their shoes and it's like that's one of the pitfalls you know that i see um let me finish but the other thought but one of the pitfalls that i see over and over is like where's the demonstration one of my favorite quotes from um david merrill is that information is not instruction. And that's one of the things that I saw a lot from my students is they're so eager to play with the tools and like make the pretty things, right? Which makes sense. I mean, the people that are attracted to it, especially like the more teachers that are attracted to our field or whatever, that's the fun part for many of them, right? Is creating the fun techie things. But I don't know about you, but how much better is a course 
doesn't even matter what it looks like if you are interested in the content. And we've heard mm -hmm. like content is king, but even more specifically, when you get a full demonstration of a real world context and you are put into a situation where you are solving the mm -hmm. problems yourself and you are actually immersed in the learning, that is where motivation comes is from building mastery. And, and it doesn't matter if you have an ugly course, if you give your learners an opportunity to build mastery through this framework of a problem-centered course design. And so really that's why I wanted to focus on step-by-step, -step. first step, build the final demonstration, the final whole problem, right? Of what it is that you want your learners to be able to do. And it goes through, all right, so now you've built your whole problem. So now write out a couple more problems that work their way up to the big problem that you just identified. Mm -hmm. And it goes all the way. And, and I show examples from me of full course blueprint scripts. And then I give them a checklist. And then I show them what other students have done to build it out following these same steps. And so that's what I wanted to focus on because it doesn't matter how the tools change. If you structure a course where you give people the opportunity to practice, apply, and integrate into their real world based on the actual context of what they're learning, then who cares what it looks like? I mean, mm. truly, I've seen some really ugly courses, but because they were written well, I, I was there. Mm. And that's that's really the goal of it. Yeah, and that that uh, backs up what Sebastian Tindall has said. He's the Director of Learning and Development of Vitality. I listened to him recently on uh, Michelle Locker's uh, Learning Uncut um, podcast, and he'd said one thing that they've learned is that it really doesn't need to be pretty. It needs to solve a problem. Uh, and it's you'd rather get something out quickly that solves a problem immediately than do something perfect that 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 its delay impacted what, what people were doing because he was a uh, uh, learning and development of uh, uh, people I've found uh, generally uh, will try to get something out that looks that, that looks done but 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 really if it solves a problem then you kind you can kind of uh, uh feel your way as you go and i think that another thing that really resonated with me robin and i can see how um that your approach that you've described is different from my own experience is that i've i've experienced far too much uh learning and development solutions too many learning and development solutions who tell me how things should be done but don't show me how things should be done uh, and text and text and text uh, i can tell you one recently uh, text describing me how to format a photo uh like of a, a profile photo and i couldn't do it and then i, I contacted a colleague how are you getting on with that colleague couldn't do it either when all you needed was a screen recording just show me how to do it and yeah the, the i i would say it's uh it, it's it's virgin on criminal the the amount of courses uh, that uh, that I've experienced and and again not just as a as a learner but as as someone pushing this on uh, mass to describing what may be simple or complex complex in interactions don't tell me you've got to show me uh, in order for for this to land you'll fire off uh, uh, different different um, brain cells from uh, from 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 showing me. Uh, and I like what you said there. You start with the with the big show, uh, uh, as it were, and then uh, and then and then build on that. Yeah, uh, it's interesting that you said too. Like even um, uh, the short Sims by Clark Aldridge. Mm. I don't know if you've have you seen those, David? No, or, no. Oh my gosh, they're brilliant because. 
They're a great example of a quick build e-learning course. It's completely scenario based in mm. the sense where you're put into uh, learning, but you're you're just pulling right, and you're immersed in the scenarios, and you can build them quickly. And it's mostly based on a script and simple graphics, and and they keep you engaged. And so mm. definitely check those out um, if you want to see another example of how it doesn't need to look amazing to be really effective. Mm. And you mentioned context earlier, and we've certainly seen a rise uh, in um, content created by subject matter experts or uh, in partnership with subject matter experts uh, and um, perhaps a wave of, uh, of, of uh, platforms and, um, and professionals trying to get uh, facilitate user-generated content. Um, I wonder how you see this uh, complementing or, or contradicting the work of instructional designers and what uh, what the, the pros and cons are of, uh, of such approaches? I think that such an approach could be useful, especially, I mean, just all depends on how much you've got to do, how fast that problem has to be solved, what's going to be enough of mm. a Band-Aid. I think that there's absolutely some value in having subject matter experts uh, contribute to, you know, the tribal knowledge, if you will. I would just encourage them, just like we were talking about instructional designers, have them, just let them know that they should be demonstrating mm. more than telling. Yeah. And that principle alone, David, I think makes all the difference. And yeah. it's amazing how many times I'll see student work and I'll be like, where's the demonstration? You've mm. just told me things. I want to see it. I want you to show it first and then you break it down. Right. Um, and so, you know, if we could just, even with these subject matter experts that are helping us build, just give them a rudimentary, make sure to show and give them practice opportunities. Mm. I think that alone will help. Yeah. What they yeah. contribute. I think I'd, I'd add in there as well. And, uh, and conversations I've had with uh, L and D leaders and, uh, uh, and practitioners is that user generated content isn't a goal. It, it is, uh, it is a way of doing things in order to help you to achieve stuff. But if you don't know what problem it's solving, then you're likely to be creating another problem for yourself because people don't stop work in order to create your content for you. You can engage subject matter experts uh, in uh, helping you to solve organizational problems, uh, ones that they recognize or are being keenly experienced. But actually having people create content to fill your platform, uh, I think is, uh, uh, is, uh, is problematic. Oh, it sounds like a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> That's the snippet we'll use in the uh, in the promo, uh, Robin. Uh, now, um, you know, a lot a lot of uh, approaches, methodologies, philosophies in learning and development uh, sound like great ideas, but uh, but of course they uh, they they fail in in practical reality. Now, I've been in conversation with stakeholders over the years, and whilst they may be ad adamant that they want training, I know training isn't going to work. How do you advise or, or help IDs, uh, instructional designers, to navigate these situations and ensure that um, e-learning or courses that are, create, are created are only when it's the most appropriate mode of development? So, in, in essence, uh, what what tips on stakeholder management do you uh, do you advocate? Oh my gosh, we spend so much time, so much time in IELTS Courses Academy on needs analysis, and of course, it starts out with: Is this training? 
even needed mm. right and so and then we get into in depth you know about how to ask questions and how to look for the root problem and the business goal mm. and then to determine is this a training need right based on the root problem and the business goal is this a need for training because is there a knowledge skill or sometimes an attitude gap that training can solve based on this root problem and we go through scenario after scenario all right, what's the business problem? What's what's uh, what's the business goal? What's the root problem? If you can identify these things, then is that a training thing? And yes, no. And so, I mean, that's one of the things that we do. We just spend so much time in practice activities. Yeah. <laughs> um, so as we look to uh, to wrap up, we've got a couple more questions, Robin. Uh, what's on the horizon in the world of instructional design and e-learning that's going to improve how IDs work and how employees engage with courses? What's on the horizon? Well, I just, you know, what's so interesting, you know, in 2022 is, you know, we came out of the pandemic and before the pandemic, 80% of corporate uh, training was instructor led training. And I think we've, you know, you mentioned this kind of at the beginning, David, and, and now we know that we have a remote workforce. So much of that instructor led training is being moved to e-learning or more of the hybrid solutions. Uh, we're seeing more of these learning, like these social learning networks mm. pop up. Um, like uh, Dr. Nicole Papiano Lugera from Your Instructional Designer is now exclusively focusing her agency on doing these social uh, learning networks. And I just think that um, it's truly um, interesting and fascinating to see that instead of focusing back on the instructor-led training, now we're doing more to online learning in a peer-to-peer -peer learning type of situation mm. where it still involves e-learning but now it's the the peers are also facilitating their own learning and helping each other find things and creating these like groups of support around um content to help them solve their own uh performance gaps that's guided and shaped by these um learning networks and i think that's a really interesting place to see uh where we're going in addition to um some of the other cool tools that we have available mm -hmm. to but just seeing reframing how we solve our performance gaps in this uh, this remote workforce is is truly interesting to me. Yeah, I've reinforced that as something that I've been seeing um, uh, opportunities for collaborative learning, uh, not one where uh, learning and development is outsourced to employees, but one where it's much more of a partnership. Um, you know, it, it's got to be one of the one of the biggest. Um, uh problems with learning and development that i experienced certainly my time in house which people attend a program or complete something now there's some marketing spin to it as well you know completion equals competence um like magically uh and which we know uh, has never been the case and it doesn't matter how good the marketing is uh, we as learning and development professionals have got to smell when a silver bullet uh looks acts and quacks like a like a silver bullet uh without any uh without any grounding but uh um but but the i think the antithesis of this is involving those people we're seeking to influence both in the understanding of the problem within the context in which they're expected to perform uh and uh as well as in the uh, the experience that is uh that that is designed in order to help them to perform people don't walk away from something collaborative uh, and say that that didn't work 
Uh, they, they walk away from it thinking I've got some more ideas and insights that are going to help me to do the thing that I'm expected to do uh, than, I, than I did do before. I think that, uh, that uh, um, as I said, I'm, I'm seeing that just as much. Now, Robin, uh, my final question is that um, if this conversation has piqued the, the listeners' interest in instructional design uh, and they wish to improve their own proficiency or perhaps um, uh, become an instructional designer for the first time, how do you suggest they get started? Well, of course, there are several uh, books on the marketplace. I think a lot of people like to start with books. Um, my book should be out October 4th, and it's called The Do It Messy Approach, and that is a step-by-step guidebook. Um, so you start with books, and then, of course, I mean, I have to invite you to the one and only vocational, authorized vocational school in the world for instructional design and online learning, and that is the Idle Courses Academy. Uh, this program where you actually get access for life and you it is authorized by the state of Georgia and the U.S. Board of Education. And it is a full support based on social learning, learning experience design and deliberate practice. And uh, we have hundreds and hundreds of success stories. Wonderful. Well, that would be the next place I'd encourage you to go. Great. And we'll put a link in the show notes. Um, uh, and if uh, people wish to connect with you personally, Robin, how best can they do so? Oh my gosh, let me place. So I'm on LinkedIn, uh, on Facebook. We are Idle Courses. We also have a group, Become an Idol on Facebook. We have a Facebook group. Uh, we have, um, I have an Instagram at Idle Courses. And so all the places we have YouTube channels, you can find us just Google Idle Courses. Wonderful. Thanks very much, Robin. All that's left me to say is thank you very much for being a guest on the Learning and Development Podcast. Oh, I, it was all my pleasure. Thank you, David. I certainly learned a lot from that conversation with Robin, and I hope you did too. But if this conversation has whet your appetite for good quality L&D chat, and you'd like to get involved, you can now join the L&D Collective, of which I'm an active member. Join me and hundreds of L&D peers via the link to the L&D Collective in the show notes. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, perhaps to suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, you can tweet me at David in Learning and connect on LinkedIn, again, for which you'll find links in the show notes. Goodbye for now.